So the question, does the Bible promote or condone slavery? Now, anytime we're addressing something like this, a topic like this, it's really important that we define terms. Because if we're saying slavery, do we mean what we mean in 2023 as slavery? And is the Bible, when, they talk, when the Bible talks about slavery, when the authors talk about slavery, are we talking about the same thing? Is our view of slavery the same as the biblical use of the word slavery? It's important that you know that slavery in the New Testament or in the beginning of the church, if you have a Bible, if you've ever seen a Bible, it's split up into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what splits the Old Testament from the New Testament is the life of Jesus. In the New Testament, as we find slaves... We find this word of slavery is very different than how we understand slavery today. Many of us have heard about the horrors of slavery, where innocent people were taken by traitors and claimed as property. Horrific things that human beings did to other human beings. This is how we view slavery in 2023. But in the first century, the majority of slaves were actually called bond servants. Now, that's not a term that we use very often, bond servants. What does that mean? A bond servant is someone who voluntarily becomes a servant to someone else to pay off a debt. There was a defined term. There was willingness on the part of the person who enters into the agreement to say, I am willing to submit for this length of time, and all of it was to pay off a financial debt or for some financial security for a set time. And under the Roman law, and the Romans were the occupying force at the time, there were terms, and a person was not a bond servant or slave indefinitely. And it was not about generation after generation after generation of people who were stolen from their homes and then indentured by someone else. The view of New Testament slavery, this bond servant, was very different. And oftentimes, if you actually look at different translations of the Bible, the word that we would see as slave is replaced with the word servant. Now, I want us to understand that and understand that there's a different situation but also at some level go, it's still awful. Like there's nothing about that that you go, oh yeah, that's great, so give my life away for the sake of someone else to pay off a debt. That, that's awful. There's nothing that you go, oh yeah, no problem. But I do want us to contrast and compare what we understand with what was happening at the time. And it provides us with a significant caution in 2023. See, what happens is we have this tendency to think as we approach the Bible that the words that the Bible uses mean the same today as they did then. We have this tendency as we approach biblical texts to go, okay, so when they say this word, it means all the things that I've added or think about in the context of 2023. We have to be really careful not to bring our modern definitions into biblical reality. The Bible is not just a library of books that has been written that we desperately need to read. It's also a library of books that is written at a specific time with context 
and scenarios around what's happening that, that color how we actually should read and view what was written. It's really important for us to know God did not create slavery. Human beings created slavery. Human beings that are prone to selfishness and greed, they thought, I'm going to take what is not mine. I'm going to create an environment where slavery is okay. This is what we see through all of history. Human beings left to their own devices do horrible things for the sake of their own personal selfishness. However, through the Bible, we see God giving rules and regulations for something that people had created. But when it comes to how we understand slavery in 2023, the kidnapping of people forced Labor, someone who is taken from their home and forced to then be a slave. The Bible's really, really clear about this. Exodus 21, 16 says this. Kidnappers must be put to death, whether they are caught in possession of their victims or have already sold them as slaves. So this is not a neutral thing. Where it's like, you know what, if someone kidnaps someone else, you know, whatever, It's like, what do we see here? They must be put to death. Now, you have to understand, again, the context of the Old Testament. It was pretty rough, and there were some pretty substantially rough things that were happening, but there is not this neutral view of it. And then in the the New Testament, 1 Timothy also condemns slave traders or kidnappers. So if we understand our modern definition of slavery, we see that the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament is clear that this kind of slavery is evil and it is wrong. There's no gray here. It is very clear. But then it raises the question, how is it that people, people would read the same Bible and then come to different conclusions? Because Slavery was perpetuated, and there were people that called themselves Christians that used the Bible to prove that it was okay. How can that happen? How was this kind of slavery that is clearly wrong perpetuated by people that said they believed in the Bible? It's interesting if you look back at the the, the slave trade, and we see that in the United Kingdom and the USA, there were abolitionists, people that were trying to abolish slavery, and then there were others that, that supported slavery and were active in its pursuit, and both used the Bible as proof. How? how? How can two groups of people that seem so diametrically opposed be apparently reading the same stuff and coming to a very different conclusion? I want to suggest to you some, a couple of reasons, and, and, and there is comprehensive research and, and study on all of it. And so, but I want to approach it because I, I think it's really important for us to understand one of the, the ways that I think got people here. And the, pers- the first that I think is, is a, actually a caution and a challenge for us today. Because what happens is we have two groups of people reading the Bible, and I would suggest to you that one was reading it incredibly selectively. One was looking at what the Bible said and they were editing what it said to say something that it did not say. Now, I mentioned this in a previous week. Slave owners actually took the Bible that we have and they ripped out a bunch of parts. Anything that talked about freedom, anything that gave any sense of hope to people that were slaves, they ripped it out and they said, here you go. Here's the Bible for you, the slave Bible. 
And it's interesting, as I was studying more about it, approximately 90% of the Old Testament is missing in the slave Bible, and over and half of the New Testament is gone. So you can imagine what you have to do in order to take with the Bible and what it says to make it say that slavery is okay. You have to remove most of it. In fact, there's almost 1,200 chapters in the Bible as we have it, and the slave Bible had 232. So almost 1,000 chapters had to be removed in order to make the Bible say something that it did not say, to remove hope from a group of people for their enslavement. It's so incredibly heartbreaking. All of this to subjugate people to slavery. It breaks my heart and it makes me angry that there are people that say they love Jesus and can take a book and rip apart most of it and go, here, this is what you have left. You, are, you belong to me. How heartbreaking and wrong and disgusting and evil is that? But the principle behind it of reading the Bible and taking things out of it that we don't like and reducing it to what we want it to say should challenge us today. See, even in the context of the church, we're prone to cherry pick. We pick verses and we put them on mugs. And I'm not saying that's inherently bad, but let's at least understand what's around that verse. Because we have verses on mugs or on our walls and then forget all the stuff that happens around it. We go, I like this. I don't like this one. And we pick and choose and we read selectively the things that make us feel okay and we struggle with the things that confront and challenge us. This is a human tendency and it is wrong for us to take the Bible and try to reduce it to say something that it does not say. It's so important that we read the Bible in longer chunks than just one little verse to understand its context. And I want to recommend a book, a book called How Not to Read the Bible by Dan Kimball. This book is, is really, really, really valuable, and I would suggest, I think it should be required reading for anyone who would call themselves a Christian or a follower of Jesus. So how not, you, you can even, you have my permission right now to go into Amazon and to search for how not to read, I mean, Amazon or whatever conglomerate you would like to buy your books from. <laughs> Uh, How Not to Read the Bible by Dan Kimball. I think it'll be helpful because I think so many of us, we don't pay attention to how we read and it's helpful for us to have a better, a better perspective as we are approaching the Bible. Because what happens is when we read the Bible selectively, we try to make it in our own image. We distort it to try to say what we want it to say rather than allowing it to speak to us and challenge us. This group of people read the Bible, both groups, one trying to abolish slavery based on scripture, the other taking a thousand chapters away to create the slave Bible. And some of it is connected to something called poor exegesis. Exegesis is a theological term that you probably aren't going to use in your daily life. Exegesis is the critical explanation or interpretation of a scriptural text. Here's the reality. All of us, when we read the Bible, we put on lenses. Most of us don't pay attention to the lenses that we have. 
We're like, okay, in my lens, I'm, a, I'm, I'm postmodern or I'm modern or I see th- I'm fairly educated or I'm, I don't feel very educated. We have all these things that we put on, lenses that inform our perspective. Now, they inform our perspective in life in general. There are things that each of us sees uniquely because of our experiences or how we view ourselves. And when it comes to the Bible, we put all those on, and the challenge is we often don't pay attention to them. So we're reading the Bible through this lens going, okay, I think it should say this, so I'm going to proof text what it says, and I'm going I'm to make it say things that I want it to say. And the challenge is that we have to fight that. We have to acknowledge all the filters and lenses that we put on as we read the Bible and fight for the correct way of critically understanding what the Bible is saying. It's important for us. So the reason that I'm, that I'm helping us to understand that slavery as we recognize it, that is evil, is different than the slavery that we often see in the New Testament is to help our perspective. When we look at the Bible, the reason that we, we, we approach Jesus and, and we allow him to do things that maybe challenge our, our preconceived notion is to continue to refine that perspective. Because we have all these idols we make, and we have all these versions of Christianity or Jesus that we walk in, and sometimes what happens is we read the Bible and go, I don't think this is in here. And I say that in 2023 because it's, this, it's, it's a substantial caution that can do substantial harm. If we look historically, it did significant harm. All through history... We have seen damage done when people approach Jesus with their own agenda and try to create a version of Christianity in their own image. We see substantial harm. If you look throughout the history of the church and you see things that look really, really deplorable and wrong, almost always it's because the focus turned away from Jesus and instead to something different. This was extremely evident in the Atlantic slave trade. There was someone named Frederick Douglass who was an abolitionist who, he talked about this contrast between something called, well, something that is real Christianity with something that he called Christianity of the land. I want to read his quote because I think it is significant. He says, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can, see, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. He's he's comparing and contrasting Christianity, the true Christianity, with Christianity of the land. And in his time, Christianity of the land was used to manipulate where it was okay to own people as if they were property, something that is clearly evil and wrong. But can I suggest to you that this, this resistance against Christianity of the land is not just a problem for a group of people a few hundred years ago, but it's still a problem for us today. We must resist the Christianity of the land. 
this false view of Christianity that does not represent the way of Jesus. Let me highlight a few places where I see it around us. The first is passive Christianity, where we just think, you know what my job is? Just kind of show up until heaven comes. Just wait. Just live for the weekend. Yeah, maybe I'll show up for church on Sunday, but it's not going to impact how I live. Christianity of the land. What does real Christianity say? Jesus says, you are sent to be disciples who make disciples. Being sent out on mission costs us, and it is not passive, it is active. We partner with God, yes, but we do not sit back and simply spectate, which dovetails with comfortable and consumer Christianity, where we go, my job is just to listen to someone else making a difference, someone else telling me what God says, not to listen on my own, not to do what he asked me to do, just simply exist and be comfortable which stands in direct opposition with Jesus' words when he says, die to yourself, carry your cross. I don't know about you, but dying to yourself does not sound comfortable to me. It requires me to die to all the things that I want to make it about me and instead live as he asks me to live, which then confronts the idea of the prosperity gospel, that the goal of our life is to be healthy and wealthy, that everything is good, which stands in direct opposition to almost all of the disciples who paid for their faith with their lives. And there's this tendency in North America, we go, well, that's a, that's a significant cost. Can't we just be more comfortable? Maybe not. Because if there's anything in our life that I'm unwilling to die and surrender to him, that is called an idol and it is a problem. And so we see in Frederick Douglass as he's talking about seeing real Christianity and Christianity of the land, he's going, you can't call that Christianity. And I would suggest we still can't call it Christianity. That instead the way of Jesus is something different. What about, what about uh, progressive Christianity? I don't think that we can call that Christianity either because what that requires is a removal of any authority. And instead of God being the authority in our life, we are. I get to tell God, God, listen, I know for thousands of years you have, you have done significant things through the early church and there are amazing scholars, and, and, and we've, but I think I know better now. I think I figured this out. He goes, yeah, do you know what knowledge does? It puffs up. You think you know better. And again, you go back to, great, die to yourselves. The flesh, the part of us that wants to do what we want to do, kill it. Kill it. Come to me and give me your whole life. Christianity of the land. This idea where we can somehow, we can approach Jesus and then yet be our own authority, but then he no longer is our Lord. Or what about selective Christianity? Now, let's be honest. All of us are prone to this, where we take and pick. We, we pick and choose. I want you to know that Jesus has a vision for our life around three areas, and, and I guarantee at least one of them steps on toes. Money, sex, and power. Jesus has a way of life, and it looks different. It looks different than the, the Christianity of the land. It confronts us, and our tendency is to go, I like lots of things, 
Maybe not that part, though. But we don't get permission to do that. Because then what we are doing is perpetuating the Christianity of the land. Now, historically, Christianity of the land has been used to enslave people. It led to people not figuratively being enslaved, literally being taken from their home and enslaved. And the unfortunate thing is that that enslavement is still happening today, but it is not, it's not, it's not seen and visible. It is happening inside of people where people are being enslaved to lies and told that they are unwill or that they're unable to experience freedom in their life, that if they hold on to things, that's how they, they actually control everything. And that in that pursuit of control, we have higher rates of anxiety and depression than ever before. And so you go, what it was, Christianity was used for is horrific and awful, and still today it holds people captive. And it's wrong. It was wrong then, and it is wrong today. We must resist false Christianity of the land and instead embrace the way of Jesus that continues to change lives. Slavery is wrong, and it is evil. And this idea of reminding ourselves that what we see as slavery is different than we find in the Bible, it still should cause in us some sense of going, well, well, what about the slavery that existed, this whole bond servant thing? If it was not about kidnapping people, but instead a, a bond servant, why was this tolerated in the New Testament? Like this, this, we can call it whatever we want. It seems to be wrong. Why was it not outlawed and changed? It's important for us to understand that the bond servant idea, that this idea of slavery was deeply ingrained in the entire culture. Approximately 30% of the population were, were this class, were bond servants or were slaves. 30%. And the Bible as a whole brought significant and positive impact, positive changes to ancient slavery. Again, in his book, Dan Kimball, in How Not to Read the Bible, if you haven't looked it up or made note, there's your title again, How Not to Read the Bible. It offers, he offers some extremely helpful information on this topic. And I have a couple other books that I think are valuable. And if you're wondering, because I, I want to approach it, but... There's lots to it. Please, read, read that book. It's incredibly helpful on this topic and in general. But it is important for us to understand the environment that Christians were living in. They were living in under Roman rule. The Roman Empire was in control. And the Roman Empire was built on a culture where slavery was both normal and integrated at all levels. Now, again, think mostly bond servants, but all of it was still heartbreaking. And so the early church who represents this small group of people, they couldn't just go to the Roman Empire and petition to abolish slavery. They did not have power or influence. And so what did they do? Because they would recognize that this is wrong, how did they approach it? They began to form an alternative society an alternative group of people, one where people were valued and of equal worth regardless of social standing. 
And so here you have this group of people, the early church that represented a, a tiny percentage of the whole, the whole community, and yet because of this philosophy, upended all of the political powers of the time. They challenged the, the very view of status of human beings, and they did it inside of a culture that does not value people. And so rather than expecting the system to change, they began to change the system from within. They were like yeast that the Roman Empire could not get rid of. They changed the very fabric of ancient, the ancient world. This is the way of the church to offer a counterculture that demonstrates the way of Jesus in contrast to the way of the world. And as a result of this faithfulness, Christianity led the way in abolishing slavery in ancient, in ancient times. And then, like human beings are prone to do, human beings over time got greedy and selfish and tried their best to bring it back and ramp it up. But in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see God ramping up the expectation of us to value others differently. In contrast to the culture around us to see people as valuable and worthy, we see that everyone is of equal worth as they are all made in the image of God. And what happened is, is that throughout, if you're looking at the, the Bible, we move away from needing the law. We had the law that told us how to live and what to do. We needed a set of, uh, a set of rules to remind us people are of value. And if you kidnap, this reminder of the rules, we move from that to seeing Jesus as the perfect fulfillment of all of it. And what happens is instead of seeing all of the law, we become citizens of the kingdom of God where God's rule and reign is perfect. And so we go from seeing people as valuable because we've been told that they are valuable to seeing value in people because we are understanding of their immeasurable worth. Paul, in his letter to the church in Galatia, speaks to the, the move away from law and to Jesus. And he speaks to this new identity that people have who were slaves. Galatians 3, verse 23 says this, Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no, no longer need the law as our guardian. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Faith in Christ Jesus makes us all children of God. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, 
You are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. It's important that we understand, because I think it's easy for us to moralize and go, well, we've, we've evolved so much more than the ancient world. For us to understand, whether ancient or today, we have rankings for people. We rank people. We determine who is the most worthy, the most valuable. We go, well, you know, they have this going for them, but this against them. And oh, I like that person. They, they've made some big movies, but then they really should keep their mouth shut. And, other, and we rank people. And we go, you know what? This person is of value. This person is not. We place identities or ideologies as primary as indicators of someone's ultimate identity. But this is not the way of Jesus. The message of Jesus is that our identity is found in him and him alone. And that when our identity is found in him, all of us have equal worth. Whether slave or free. And you have to understand that even this idea of equal worth, though we're kind of comfortable with it, we go, okay, well, that makes sense to us. This was beyond countercultural when it was written. This was not normal. There was not this sense of people have value. Instead, people were seen as being worthless. And it reminds us that the way of Jesus is not the way of the world, Mark Sayers, who's a pastor in Melbourne, says that what we want in our world is the kingdom without the king. And so some of what we see of seeing all people of equal value is the kingdom. We see the impact of the church. And so there are people that don't even understand that that's where it came from. And they go, I want that. I just don't want the one who gave that. I don't want the king. I don't want God who sets things, who outlines how things should be. We want the benefits without the cost, and that's a problem. And we live in an interesting moment today where Christianity can be seen as archaic, oppressive, and even harmful. But did you know that we have universities because of Christians? Like, pretty much all of them started because of Christians. Do you know why we have hospitals? Christians? If we look throughout history, we see people actively following the way of Jesus and making the world better in their wake, significantly improving the people that are around. We see people of equal value because of Christianity, not some other belief system or ideology. We have a value of life because of the early Christians. It's really interesting, actually, if you study the early church, there's some things that, that you, you wrestle with and you realize these were not just things that they thought, you know what, we value people, it was something that they modeled. There's an extreme difference between saying it and actually doing it. And so in the ancient world, children were not seen as valuable. And if parents did not want children, they would just discard them. They would take them to the edge of the town and some wild animal would come and find this defenseless child or they'd take them to garbage dumps. It was awful. And the Christians of the time, they, they found out that this was happening and rather than just petitioning someone in power or, or posting on Facebook, they went 
into the garbage dumps and they rescued children and they took them home. And it's interesting because I'm seeing a move right now in, in increasing, certainly in the, in the Christian subculture or the Christian culture to increase our fostering, to make room for kids again. And I think, okay, is, is it possible that maybe we need to not just say we value something, but do it? Like the early church had significant impact because they didn't just say, hey, we believe all people are of equal worth. They did it. And it cost them. And it was inconvenient, and yet it changed the world. And that's not even hyperbole. And so you look at the way of Jesus, and it stands in opposition to the way of the world. The way of Jesus gives dignity to those that don't have it. The way of Jesus reminds each of us, it doesn't matter who you are, give your life to Jesus. Surrender all of it to him. Become, find your identity, not in all these other things that are like mirages that'll harm you or enslave you. Find your identity in Jesus alone. Give your life so that you might live. Christianity changed the world and as it did, had to continue the fight that we find ourselves in again against Christianity of the land. Instead of being someone that follows the way of Jesus, adding in, taking away, and trying to make it in our image. And we see historically that Christianity of the land harmed always way more than it ever helped. But at the core of this early movement that we get to be part of today, is a group of people that holds Jesus at the very center and is willing to live like what he says actually should change our lives. And it just so happens that in history, we see ebbs and flows. We see ebbs and flows with our alignment as Christians, with the world. There have been times in history, and we came out of it, where what we valued kind of fit with what the Christianity of the land or the world valued. And so there wasn't as much friction or tension. You're like, okay, it's pretty, pretty good, pretty easy to be a, a Christian. But increasingly, we find ourselves in an environment where that will be less true. That what we value, that what Jesus values, is different. And it creates this tension that many of us already feel. The, the historical and orthodox church has always been at its best when it is a counterculture, when it runs opposite to the way of the world, not trying to be in bed with it. And this is the invitation that we have today. And the problem that we have, that we see so often, and certainly if you talk to people that are outside of the, word, the, the world is our tendency towards hypocrisy. Because as a culture, we would all go, I don't know anybody that, that, has, any, that has any sense of maturity that goes, slavery was good. I think everyone would go, slavery is evil and wrong. Or certainly anyone that we would want to spend time with, evil and wrong. But you know what the hypocrisy is? We as a culture can decry it, but right now, there's 40 million people that are slaves in the world. And we go, that was a problem. 
I can't believe it. I can't believe they let that happen. I can't believe they were okay with it. And you know what we do today? We go, well, that's not here, mostly. Like we have slave labor, forced labor, sex trafficking, substantial groups of people that are in slavery right now. And the hypocrisy of the world is the world goes, yeah, we value certain people if it looks good on Instagram. If we can just say something and then that's it, just put out a statement and see, now we're good. But I think, again, we are invited as Christians not to be like the world, but to be like the early Christians that didn't just say it, but did something. That went, I am not okay with this. And it costs us. Like, honestly, the more I read, the more I'm like, oh, man, like, clothes. Lots of the clothes that we have were made by slave labor. Our phones. Like as if phones weren't evil enough and of their own. Our phones, the batteries that we have were often made in mines from people that were not paid for their work or children that were put to work. Phones assembled by little hands. Now we see, I just want to point out the hypocrisy in culture. Because we go, yeah, this is wrong. This we're just going to pretend doesn't exist. We can't do that. Now, my heart here is not to condemn each of us who have phones or are wearing clothes. My heart is to expose the Christianity of the land and present to you real Christianity, the way of Jesus that costs us. And the more that I, that, that I read it, the more that I realize, you know, it's so easy for us to compartmentalize and go, yeah, it's wrong and some of this is bad, but I'm just going to pretend like this doesn't exist. I don't want that for us. If we are saying that people are of equal value, that goes for the people that aren't in the room, that are in mines in other places. This is why there are organizations that are amazing, like A21. A21 works with human trafficking and rescuing people, and they do a walk for freedom every year, and you better believe this year we're doing it. But I think there are organizations that are doing something significant because here's the struggle for us is we live in a time where you're overwhelmed by all the stuff that's happening and it causes us to do nothing. But what does it look like for us to begin to do something every single day to move in a direction that looks more and more like Jesus? We can't simply decry slavery in the past and be okay with it existing today. We need to condemn it as evil and not just for a statement, but in our lives actually live like people are valuable and people are made in the image of God. We cannot think with Western eyes. We cannot have self-centered perspective. Instead, we are invited, like the early church, to be faithful in in our presence, to follow Jesus in all moments, to partner with God as he ushers in the kingdom of God. We get to be citizens of a different kingdom. We get to live differently. We get to represent a, a counterculture to what we see around us. And I don't know where you're at. I don't know what sits with you or what you're recognizing man, there's some stuff that I need to work on. I need to do some research or I need to repent. Maybe some of us in the room, we really, and I believe there are people in the room that need to, that need to repent and, and, and ask God for forgiveness for following Christianity of the land. 
And I would just admit there are times that I think for me that's, that's a reality. Like it would be a lie for me to say that there aren't times that I just wish it was a little bit more convenient, a little bit less costly, a little bit easier. And yet that is not the way of Jesus. And throughout history, we see how when we follow anything other than Jesus, it shipwrecks people. And so maybe we need to come back to God the Father and say, God, forgive me, help me. Help me to engage with Scripture well. Start with that book. Like, if you want a very clear next step, that'd be a good one. And the invitation, God, help us. And so I want to do something, I want to do something as a church in response. You, you might be feeling something and know there's something you need to do, and I want to encourage you. Listen to the Holy Spirit and do that. Maybe you need to come up to the prayer team. Maybe you're grieved by all of this and you need to do something with it. Great. Don't sit where you are. Do what he's asking you to do. But I want to do something as a church. Would you stand up for, with me for a moment? The disciples asked Jesus how to pray. And they're saying, how do we pray? And Jesus gives an example. We call it the Lord's Prayer. And it's a way of habituating our lives towards his kingdom, his way, his rule, his reign. And so the world around us needs something different. Is it possible that we need to align ourselves with what Jesus said as he prayed? So I want to pray the Lord's Prayer over each of us. And I want to invite you to agree as you're standing where you are. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. God, forgive us from the time, for the times that we are self-centered North Americans that think more about our comfort than other people. God, forgive us for the times that we settle into reading your scripture and trying to make it say something that it does not. God, forgive us for the times that we get comfortable and passive, that we feel like we might know better than you. God, in your grace, forgive us as we as we do the things that we know we shouldn't do. God, I ask in these moments, as we even respond in worship, that you would give us vision to see what you see, that you would help us not to be content to simply just know information, know about the things that are wrong and feel overwhelmed, but instead to respond to you, to do our part. We see in the early church a group of people who are simply willing to, to say yes to you in every single moment and how they can change the world. God, we don't have to do everything. We just need to do what you're asking us to do. Speak to us. Quiet all the noise. God, as we respond in worship, guide us and give us courage. As we try to faithfully follow you, in a culture where increasingly that is difficult, give us steel in our spines. Remind us of where our identity is, and it's not in anything else that the world says it is, in you, Jesus. God, have your way.
God, I love you. We love you. Guide us. Holy Spirit, come.